Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Society for Nautical Research, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. It's the 7th of November. This continues our series of excerpts from the logbook of the whaler Swan of Hull, trapped in the ice in the Davis Straits in 1836. Things have been worsening on board. The ship has drove among a great number of icebergs. Our fear for the preservation of the ship is very great. We have everything in bags ready for running should we have the misfortune to come into contact with either of them. The carpenter employed in cutting up a spare topmast for fuel, our coals being nearly exhausted. 7th November. The thermometer 13 below zero. A glass of water placed on the cabin table before the fire was in a few minutes skimmed over with ice. We know exactly where the swan was when her captain made these entries, just off the west coast of Greenland. And measurements taken today reveal that still no ice has formed. Hello everyone and welcome to our podcast. This week we have a real treat. In the coming months we will be talking to leading professionals at maritime museums all over the world. And the first one I wanted to get on the show is a real favourite of mine. It's the wonderful Hudson River Maritime Museum in New York. The museum was established in 1979 to collect, preserve, research, exhibit and interpret a collection of historical artefacts related to the maritime heritage of the Hudson River and its tributaries. And I think they're doing just the best job in telling that story. They have a magnificent collection and I would urge you to visit them online at www.hrmm.org. And of course, they are all over social media as well. Their Instagram page is particularly varied and fun. I'm speaking today with Sarah Wasberg-Johnson, Director of Exhibits and Outreach. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for coming on to talk today. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. That's all right. So, Sarah, you work in the Hudson River Maritime Museum. So it sounds like a wonderful job. But you're originally from the Midwest. You told me this, which uh, which I, I thought was fascinating because it's just about as far as you can possibly get from the sea. And yet you, you live and work by by the river, which goes directly to the sea now. Yeah, it, it definitely um, was a change of pace. I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, 
Um, so I do actually have a fair amount of boating experience because Minnesota Lakes country is right next door. Ah, uh, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. But I had only ever seen the ocean twice before <laughs> moving to New York. Um, and the Hudson River is not really the ocean. It is an estuary, but it's it's very deeply connected to the ocean. So It absolutely is. Um, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. I'm very lucky to have traveled up. Um, majority of the length of the Hudson, actually, when I was researching my book on the American Revolution. In fact, I think I recreated a portage. We we um, we took a boat down Lake Champlain, then into Lake George, um, and we had to carry it, <laughs> carry this enormous wooden rowing boat across that little strip of land between the two. And then I was um, very lucky to spend some time. It's a beautiful part of the world. So um, tell me a bit about this this wonderful museum. So the Hudson River Maritime Museum was founded in 1980, um, largely by a group of steamboat enthusiasts who had been involved in trying to save the Alexander Hamilton, which was the last side wheel steamboat in existence at the time. Um, And were they successful? They were not successful, Um. sadly. Um, Her... We're going to have to fact check me on this, but um, I'm, I'm pretty sure her... Her hull was damaged in a storm, so yeah. after that, she was pretty much unsalvageable. Um, but so we moved to our current location on Rondout Creek in 1983, and uh, the reason why we're located in Kingston is because Kingston was a major industrial port for most of the 19th century and into the 20th century. Um, it's also located about halfway between New York City and Albany, so it gives us a good vantage point for interpreting the Hudson. Um, and the Rondout Creek was also the terminus of the Delaware and Hudson Canal. So there's lots to interpret. Yeah, yeah, important to realize that it's not, however massive and impressive the Hudson is, it's, you know, it's over 300 miles long, isn't it? But there are lots of very significant tributaries and the canal you mentioned as well. So there's a whole maritime network there. Yeah, and that's that's part of what makes the Hudson River so unique in American history is that it does have these tributaries that really extend its reach far into the interior of the United States. Yeah. And what sort of industries grew up there that made use of the river? Um, so throughout the 18th century, it was the primary transportation highway um, between Albany and the interior and New York City. So um, there were lots of agricultural products, uh, lumber, things like that going down to New York City. Uh, but things really started to boom with uh, the opening of several canals. Um, construction began on the Erie Canal in 1817 and was completed in 1825. Uh, and that was really significant because the Mohawk River Valley, again, we're talking about tributaries, the Mohawk River Valley is one of the only places what, that you can get through the Appalachian Mountain Range, which stretches yeah. from Florida to, to Maine. Or sorry, George, or stretches from Georgia to Maine. So, um... It was really one of the only waterways that crossed that mountain range, and that's part of the reason why the Erie Canal becomes so important to the development of the United States. But there are two other canals that connect the Hudson River. Um, The Champlain Canal, which was opened, it's kind of a funny story, they started uh, construction on that in 1818, opened it in 1819, and then it dried up in the summer. (laughs) 
So they had to redo the entire canal. So that opened in 1823. Um, and then the canal that's closest to our museum, the Delaware and Hudson Canal, uh, opened in 1825 and closed in 1898. So that canal is not actually still in existence. But it had a huge impact on the Hudson River and industry because it brought anthracite coal from Pennsylvania, Honesdale, Pennsylvania specifically, uh, to Kingston and to New York City and the rest of the world. Yeah, um, it's fascinating how, do you know what, that story about the Champlain Canal has made me want to do an entire sub-series of this podcast on canal making, because I think the stories are just, you come across them, it's unimaginable, back-breaking, endless labour. It, um, it really uh, yeah. is, and the d Canal actually had the most locks out of all of them. It's a hundred and, what is that, I think it's 108 miles and 108 locks. So, of course, it's not one lock every mile. There are sections where you have a lot of locks. Um, Do you know what? My, my, my parents took me on a canal boating holiday once when I was a kid, and they deliberately took me on this stretch of canals. I think it, I'm not sure where it was in the UK now, but it had the most locks. And I basically had to walk the entire length of it, cranking those, those annoying things and still stuck in my brain. Thanks, Mum, if you're listening. So you were the towpath kid on that? Yeah, yeah, like child, child labour, basically. <laughs> it's completely unacceptable. <laughs> anyway, um, it is fascinating the way you've got all of these canals feeding into this 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 massive river. So there's a, such an important industrial uh, history of the Hudson, isn't there? Yeah, and that's, um, you know, the Hudson River is unique in a lot of ways. Um, New York State was kind of on the forefront of a lot of industrial um, technologies, uh, you had, uh, as I'm sure you know from your research into the American Revolution, you had all the uh, foundries at West Point and Cold Spring. Um, and then, of course, also the Hudson River is one of the pioneering locations for steamboat transportation. Uh, Robert Fulton in 1807 starts the first commercial steamboat um transportation company basically and starts making regular passenger runs between New York City and Albany um, and his side wheel steamboat design uh, is really influential throughout the world um, the opening of the DNH canal and it's you know prevalence all of a sudden you have this ready available supply of inexpensive high quality coal of course the first steamboats are running on wood just not terribly mm. efficient. You have to stop often <laughs> to refuel. Um, coal was a little easier uh, to transport. Anthracite coal in particular burns very hot. Um, and it's a relatively clean coal compared to um, bituminous coal, which is what people were using previously. Uh, and so this ready availability of coal really jumpstarts the Industrial Revolution uh, in New York and with steamboat transportation and towing transportation, which comes not long after. So, yeah. It's fascinating how the, um, the the industrial history of it and also the, the, the history of the, the leisure uh, goes on because they, it wasn't just about ferrying people up and down the river, was it? It was, it was proper luxury trips going up and down the Hudson. Yeah, so that is something that starts almost from the beginning. Of course, steamboat traffic starts with passenger traffic. A lot of the canals had uh, packet boats, right? So it's this very leisurely, quiet transportation on the canals. It's not particularly fast, but it's much nicer than being bounced around in a stagecoach on horrible roads. <laughs> um, 
And there's also this sort of romance, this sort of romantic concept of water travel, river travel through these majestic scenic areas uh, becomes an ongoing theme throughout the 19th century. And when we get into like the 1830s and 40s, really starts to be influencing artists and authors, writers, people who are producing literature, um, people like the Hudson River School of Art, uh, Washington Irving. You know, these are the types of people who are traveling to the Hudson River on these leisure trips. They're visiting the Catskills. Uh, later in the century, they're visiting the Adirondacks via the Hudson River. So, um, yeah, the the idea of the Hudson River as this stunning scenic landscape is something that really develops in the 19th century as well. It's fascinating the way you've got a real contrast. So you've got these these people um, ice harvesting. I saw that as well as a really important in the ice trade. But on the one hand, we'll come back to that in a minute. You've got a real serious in- industry, brick making, uh, quarrying, cement making, crushed stone, uh, coal transport. And then the other side of it, you've got artists, uh, artists and authors sort of kicking back and admiring the scenery. <laughs> yeah, so part of that is a lot of the really what we call extractive industries, brick making, cement making, bluestone, ice harvesting. Um, but in particular, the construction related uh, extractive industries are because in the 1830s, Manhattan has an enormous fire. Um, and they pass a law that you can't have wooden buildings in the city of New York anymore. So all of a sudden, wow. there's this huge demand for stone and brick uh, and cement. And that's part of what fuels all of these extractive industries in the Hudson Valley. I did not know that. That's that's fascinating history right there. Um, and so how, tell me about the museum. I mean, do you try and tell all of these myriad stories? Is it is it even possible to do so? <laughs> I don't know if it's possible, but we try. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a little easier for us than many places because we, we are not interpreting a specific era. We're pr- interpreting a specific place. So our scope of interpretation is the entire Hudson River, really. But we focus on the area between Albany and New York City um, throughout time. So how have things changed over time? How has the river had an impact on national events? Uh, what are the trends that are shaping human habitation and social and cultural influences. Um, So our museum is, it's great for us because we do a new exhibit. We do a new temporary exhibit every year. Um, So we have this huge scope of information that we can interpret every year. So right now our two temporary exhibits, we have one about the Hudson River and its canals. And then our other more recent one is um, about the role of the Hudson River in shaping the uh, the American environmental movement. In the largely in the 1960s and 70s, so yeah, that's an extraordinary story, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think enough people know about it. Come on, let's let's chat about that. It's sure, fantastic. yeah. So definitely in the 19th century, I think the American West starts to kind of get people thinking about the value of the wilderness, of course, which is kind of a construct in and of itself. Um, but it's really the impact on pollution in particular and also scenic value 
is centered in the Hudson River Valley at the end of the 19th century. So in particular, I don't know if you're familiar with the Palisades. Yes, the well, I, yeah, they stretch okay, from, yeah, yeah, yeah. from the on the western side of the river from southern New York down into New Jersey. Um, you it's can very see, important in the, in the revolution, trying to climb up yes. those. It, it, it affected everything. <laughs> it's this huge uh, shelf of, I think it's basalt. Yeah, right, it is, yeah. Rock. It's, I mean, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a mountain. <laughs> this is the only way to describe it. O, o, up the side of the river. Yeah, it's a, it's the huge cliffside, and in the late nineteenth century, the Palisades were being quarried, they were being blasted, and they were being blasted for not for like you know construction materials to build these big edifices. They were being blasted for trap rock. Right. Um, which was used to lay railroad beds. Huh. So it's a gravel, essentially. And there was a particularly famous shape um, on the palisade. It's called Indian Head, because, of course, it looked like the head of a Native American man. Uh, and that was blasted and destroyed. And so you have these uh, wealthier Americans, largely, um, who they want to go on their expensive yachts and view the beautiful scenery of the Hudson Valley. And there's this destructive, loud, smoky blasting going on. And so they start to oppose it. Um, the New Jersey Federation of Women's Clubs is extraordinarily influential in trying to preserve the Palisades. And what they come up with is they raise money to purchase essentially the Palisades. And then for the management, they come up with a really unique partnership between New York State and New Jersey. Um, and so you get the Palisades Interstate Park Commission. So they have a partnership with both states that manage the single park of the Palisades. So the Palisades Interstate Park Commission was completed about 1909. Um, and that is really what starts um, sort of the modern movement of historical and scenic preservation in New York State. And that's kind of what gets built upon in the 1930s. Um, the Hudson River Conservation Society forms to protect Mount Taurus from quarrying, which is within the viewshed of uh, West Point. Mm -hmm. um, but then that's kind of where environmentalism is sort of at when we get to the 1960s, that it's more about the scenic beauty of the Hudson River. And in the 1960s, um, the commercial fishermen of the Hudson River join forces with the sports fishermen of the Hudson River because they notice there's a pretty serious decline in the fishery and they suspect that pollution is playing a big role. So up until the 1940s, most of the pollution in the United in um, most of the pollution in the Hudson River was sewage mm -hmm. <laughs> and debris and you know some industrial pollution. But starting in the 1940s and 50s, you get a lot of um, chemical industries that are polluting. You get the rise of you start to get um, nuclear power plants. So we have a nuclear power plant installed in 19. In the 19, late 1950s um, at Indian Point. Oh, right. Okay, right. Yep. And so there's all of a sudden there's more and more awareness about pollution. And um, in particular, these fishermen um, and what becomes known as the Scenic Hudson Conference um, 
start to fight the construction of a new power plant at Storm King Mountain. I don't know if you've heard of this at all. No, I haven't. No. Okay, so um, to me. Storm King is quite a famous mountain. It's at the northern end of the Hudson Highlands, which is an area of the Hudson River that basically goes between several mountains, right? So it's very mountainous region, very scenic, very famous mountains going through there. They all have their own names. Um, and Storm King was depicted in a number of Hudson River School paintings. Um, and it's just a very famous scenic mountain. So in 1962, which is the same year, and actually the same day, coincidentally, that Rachel Carson's Silent Spring is published, on that exact same day that that book is published, um, Consolidated Edison Electric Company announces that they're going to build a pumped storage hydroelectric power plant at Storm King um, <laughs> to kind of increase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's the available electric supply for New York City. Um, so pump storage, how that works is in the off-peak times, usually on, in like, like overnight, um, they would use electricity from the regular grid to pump raw Hudson River water up into a holding reservoir in the mountains. And then at peak times, they would use gravity to release it, and it would make the turbines turn and it would produce electricity. So wow. It's actually not a bad idea for producing electricity inexpensively and somewhat sustainably. Um, But the mountain that they chose, I don't know why they chose Storm King. Um, The Hudson Highlands are very rocky, very stony areas, not good for agriculture. They were very sparsely settled throughout most of the 19th century. So maybe that was the closest available land. I don't know. Um, But Storm King itself is very porous stone system like the the geology of storm king the stone is very porous um and so there were a couple of things that environmental environmentalists were opposed to they were opposed to the idea of a giant power plant on the face of storm king mountain that would be viewable from the river um they were opposed to pumping untreated hudson river water 
into just a reservoir that wasn't sealed. They're worried about contaminating groundwater supplies for people who lived in that area. And the fishermen were con concerned about sucking all this Hudson River water up into a mountain and like you're gonna suck fish and in particular fish eggs because that was a spawning area for a number of species of fish so those are like the three reasons why they opposed this power plant and the interesting no, I, thing about this i don't really know why consolidated edison fought this for so long but they fought that power plant for like 18 years yeah and wow. it was a series of legal decisions that become known as either the storm king decision or the scenic hudson decision that basically sets legal precedent in the united states for individual citizens to sue on behalf of the environment. So ah. previously you needed to have some sort of economic stake. Yeah. You know, and this well, is the God, first so it's time. It's fundamental, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely fundamental to, to the whole history of, of being able to, to fight for the environment. Yes, it is. That is the landmark mm. decision. That's fantastic. I mean, it really makes me wonder. I know nothing about this at all. It's the joy of maritime history. Is you keep coming across things you, you're interested in but don't know anything about. Is the um the the struggle with, with people living on the side of these rivers to to maintain the cleanliness of it. The only the only kind of comparative thing I know is the struggle uh, of Londoners to keep the Thames clean in the in the late seven, late sixteen eighties, sixteen nineties. Um but it must have been it, it must have been a similar pattern uh, pretty much all over the world, with people living by rivers, but really struggling with the um, with the quality of the water. Well, the Hudson River is a little bit unique in that it's a very it's naturally a very silty river, so it looks brown, it looks murky because of the tidal action of the river. I don't know if we've talked about that, but the Hudson River is an estuary, so it does have tides from New York City all the way up to Troy, which is just north of Albany. Um, so, for instance... And, and how many miles is that? It's a seriously long way, isn't it? It's like 165 miles, somewhere around there. Yeah. yeah. And I think, the, you know, the, the unique geology and, the, 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 I suppose, the associated ecology of it, is of the Hudson, is, is so crucial to the way that, that history played out there. But um, that's a very long tidal reach, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. So at the Hudson River Maritime Museum in Kingston, which is about 90... 90 miles north of New York City, uh, we have a four-foot tide. Do you? <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and the, I mean, the, it is unique in, in other ways as well, isn't it, in the, the ecology? Can you talk a little bit more about that? The ecology or the geology? Um, either. <laughs> um, so the ecology of the Hudson River, because it is a tidal estuary, is also unique in many ways because tidal estuaries combine salty seawater with fresh water. And in the Hudson River, the salt line, we call it, is between Poughkeepsie and Newburgh. So it's about 60 miles up the river. Um, and it fluctuates depending on the time of year and what the tides are. Um, and then so part of the reason why just in the side about ice harvesting, part of the reason why the ice harvesting industry was so big in Kingston is because we were above the salt line, right? You don't want salt in your ice and you, your ice freezes sure. better if it's fresh water. Yeah. Um, but that means that the Hudson River has an incredibly diverse um, set of life in it. So I think there's something like 200 different varieties of fish that call the Hudson River home. Um, there are all kinds of other wildlife, um, 
And this is part of what made human settlement in the Hudson River Valley um, so easy, right? So some of the most famous fish of the Hudson River are uh, sturgeon, shad, and striped bass. Um, there are a number of spring fish runs, which people, indigenous people living in the Hudson Valley took advantage of for thousands of years. And definitely when Europeans first started coming to the Hudson Valley, they took advantage of that as well. In the springtime, it's a it's a ready source of protein after a very lean time of year. Um, so shad is, American shad is a, a very large type of herring that comes up every spring. Um, striped bass are more of a predator, predator fish. They come up to spawn in the spring. And the Atlantic and short-nosed sturgeon are probably the most interesting, I think, fish of the Hudson River because they're these giant prehistoric-looking fish. If you know any, anything about sturgeon, they are very prehistoric-looking. They have bony plates and skin instead of scales, right? They tend they to hang like out on the been, bottom. They look like they've been drawn by a medieval monk. Yes! <laughs> you ever, yes, you they look do. At the, they have these illustrated whiskers. Manuscripts. Yeah. yeah, they have these big whiskers and all these weird fins. And they're huge. They can get over 14 feet long. Wow, I didn't know that. Yes, and that's, that's modern ones can get mm. over 14 feet long. So presumably... Gosh. Historically, they lived longer, so yeah, they yeah. were bigger. But they were known <clears throat> they were known in the 19th century as Albany beef <laughs> because they were so prevalent and people ate them. Yeah, yeah. And they produced so much meat, I should think. Yes, they're huge, yes. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, and I'm really looking forward to um, sharing some of your oral history collection of your uh, the, the river's commercial fishermen, which is... Um, uh, I was just reading about that. You made you collected these interviews in the early 1990s. Yes. Yeah, so there, we have a series of sets of interviews. Um, one was done in 1984, and then there was a long series that was commissioned in 1989 through I think the last one is 1997. Um, and it was interviewing these Hudson River commercial fishermen, many of whom were involved in what became known as Riverkeeper, that's another thing I didn't talk about with the environmental movement, but the Hudson River is the source of the original Riverkeeper organization, which is now all over the world. Um, and the reason why they were interviewing them is because the commercial fishery in the late 80s, early 90s, and the Hudson River was closed. And the reason why it was closed was because of PCB contamination polychlorinated biphenyls <laughs> which is why everybody calls them pcbs by their their acronym um which is the result of industrial contamination largely by general electric but a number of other companies um in the on the northern end of the hudson river they were just dumping these chemicals in the river for decades like from the 1940s through the 1970s which is when mm -hmm the Department of Environmental Conservation finally announced that the Hudson River was contaminated with these chemicals. Um, and of course, they're the kind of chemicals that reside in the fat of fish and particularly right. predator fish, mm. right? So the fishery was very affected um, 
and the commercial fishery was closed. And there wasn't really a lot of assistance for any of these commercial fishermen. Wow. So it was just their whole livelihood taken away. There yeah. was just a, a, law, a, a rule was passed. You cannot fish. You cannot. These, this water is polluted. So the commercial fishing in the Hudson River is a little bit complex because a lot of the commercial fishermen were not fishing year round, obviously, and but also really focused on the spring fish run. So a lot of them had other jobs, I think. And so that probably played a role in the lack of support. Um, but for a lot of them, being a commercial fisherman was their primary identity. You know, yeah, you might work at the post office or, you know, you might own a mechanic garage, but your identity was as a commercial fisherman. That's the thing you loved best. That's the thing they loved best. That's how they identified. And so part of the reason why these oral histories were recorded was to preserve these voices and these experiences because it was disappearing. You know, if you don't have an active commercial fishery, there's not people actively fishing, you're not passing that knowledge on to the next generation. Um, And a lot of them had been fishing, you know, a lot of them were in their 70s, 80s. A lot of them had been fishing since they were children. So they knew about historic fishing techniques. So that's like a lot of what's covered in, in the oral histories. But it's it's an industry that simply doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's certainly something we want to do is to bring um, captured oral history like that to all of our listeners. I hope you're enjoying this podcast, dear listeners. Uh, and so I think we're going to start with a couple of a couple of examples from your wonderful oral history collection. So I'm really looking forward to to, to bringing everyone a taste of that. So uh, as well as your uh, this these oral history collection, you said you've got a variety of um, uh, uh, paintings, prints, photographs, all sorts of bits and pieces in the museum. You also have a number of fantastic archives as well, brilliant archival material. Um, you talk a little bit about your resources there for historians and students. Sure. Yeah, so our collecting scope is anything and everything directly related to the Hudson River. Um, and the bulk of our collection is, is actually made of the collection of a man by the name of Donald C. Ringwald, who was the leading expert on Hudson River steamboats. Um, so that makes up the bulk of our collection. It's probably a third to a half of our collection, which is quite large. I think there's something like 90,000 items in that collection, and we still haven't, we still haven't cataloged them all. Um, oh, brilliant. I love a wild archive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, much, it's much better organized than a lot of museum archives that I've been to. But there's we, we try to catalog um, all, everything, including ephemera, you know, documents, photographs, everything. So um, we know what we have. We just haven't necessarily put it all in our database yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also have collections of a lot of the industrial um activities that are happening. We have a huge, uh, we have volunteers who are cataloging, hopefully for digitization right now, um, a large collection of technical drawings, including like blueprints for um, marine steam engines, for tugboats, for boat construction. Um, We have ice yachting collections, ice harvesting, uh, coal company (laughs) collections. Um, I'm going to come back to you. I think we'll have a dedicated episode on the ice ones. Those sound fantastic. Yes, really, I would love really to talk about ice harvesting those. and ice yachting. That would be fantastic. Yeah. And lighthouses. I hear, I hear you are the ladies you talk to about lighthouses. That's right. We wrote a book. 
about lighthouses. Um, so I was the editor and co-author of that book, which we did a lot of very interesting original research. So yeah, and I think one thing you guys are doing, which is which is also fantastic, is this um, emphasis on submerged resources. It's certainly something I'm I'm increasingly interested in is the amount of submerged material. Um, which 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 is so precious needs to be protecting and needs to be investigated in its own right. So you have your submerged resources project, don't you? Yeah. So that's um, the Hudson River is a little unique in that because it is so murky, um, and because it's very deep in many areas, we actually don't know that much about the shipwrecks and submerged maritime resources, as we like to call them. Um, some of them are known, but only a few um, have ever had divers professionally and officially investigate them. Um, and because it's still a very active international shipping channel, <laughs> um, it can be a little bit difficult and dangerous to investigate some of these resources, but it is something that we feel, feel very strongly should be protected. Right now, the primary protection is not telling anyone where they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, Silence. Um, <laughs> so powerful. <laughs> yes. So, you know, there's a lot of rumors and things, and people aren't particularly educated either about the rules and laws protecting maritime resources. I think there's a lot of um, misconceptions about maritime salvage like oh I found it it's mine it's like that yeah. does, that's not really true when it comes to historical <laughs> resources yeah. um, but that's something we've been um, partnering with the Lake Champlain Maritime Museum uh, yeah, that's which, a fantastic place yes, that's someone else I want to talk to they have done a ton of research into their maritime submerged maritime resources which are a little bit easier to access because Lake Champlain <laughs> is quite clear crystal clear <laughs> isn't it and Lake George as well yeah um, but their staff and uh, divers and stuff have have um, dived some of the wrecks. Art Cohen, who I think is recently retired from there, um, has been interested in helping to preserve our our submerged maritime heritage, as we like to call it. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's definitely one of the things that we support. Well, thank you so much for your time, for talking to us about, about your wonderful museum, your wonderful collections. Uh, we've, I think our listeners will sense that we've only just scratched the surface <laughs> of what we can do. Um, and we can come back and we can talk about But I promise you this, we're going to come back and talk about lighthouses. I'm going to come back and talk about ice yachting um, and ice harvesting. And definitely we will bring you some of these fantastic oral history collections. So there's so much more material going to be coming um, all from the wonderful Hudson River Maritime Museum. Sarah, thank you so much for talking to us today. It was my pleasure. Before we wrap up, a little news from the Society for Nautical Research's forum. We've had a very interesting post here from Nicholas Blake, the naval historian. Between 1st of October and 1805 and 28th of February 1806, Sir Sidney Smith had a secret mission in the Channel, possibly to harass and annoy the enemy, possibly to discover troop and ship movements. Does anyone know what this was? Sir John Barrow's two-volume life skips this winter. And there have been some uh, responses to that. So if you want to check out what's going on there, look at snr.org.uk forward slash forum. And a, another question here from the excellent Malcolm Lewis, a regular contributor to the SNR forum. And this is about gunnery during the age of sale, particularly on HMS Victory. 
With a ship's company of over 800 men and only some 150 required to actually sail the ship in normal circumstances, it was important to keep those aboard to man the great guns regularly occupied, especially when moored in an anchorage for many days, even weeks. The gunnery operations were complex with not only men handling each three-ton cannon, but with men in the magazines and supplying the gun decks with powder and shot. During the YouTube walking tour of the ship online and noting some cannon in the officers' living spaces such as the great cabin and the wardroom, I'm interested as to how exercising the guns was organised. It's difficult to believe in what often was a daily routine, the living quarters of the officers, including the captain and admiral, were disrupted by the removal of partitions and furniture, much of which were sent down to the hold in actual battle situations with great rapidity. British ships were noted for their efficient gunnery honed by regular practice. It's difficult to find reference to the routine involved in exercising the guns. Perhaps on only infrequent occasions was the whole ship made ready for action, and the daily exercise involved only small sections of the ship's armament. Any suggestions would be welcome. Many thanks. And a discussion follows there. You can check that out as well. snr.org.uk forward slash forum. Well, I do hope you enjoyed our podcast this week. We've got so much more coming your way. If you want to help, the best thing you can do is spread the word. Say that you're enjoying it on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, wherever you are. We'll promise to follow you back and give you a shout out. You can find us on Instagram at Mariner's Mirror Pod. And we've got a YouTube channel coming soon. You can also follow the Society for Nautical Research on Twitter at Nautical History and also on Facebook. Thanks, guys. Bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.